Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study Podcast. It's a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name is Adam, and I'm about to start the 20-minute timer. And while I'm doing that, why don't you open your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 2. 20 minutes on the clock. Here we go. We left off last week in uh, Exodus, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. Moses had been born in a time where his people were enslaved. The Jewish people were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And not only that, but if you were a baby boy born in that time in the land of Egypt, you were marked for death. But Moses' mother hid him and then eventually, of course, hid him in a uh, floating basket boat uh, sort of thing along the Nile River. He was discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he was raised in the royal household. So God had a, has a sense of humor and had Moses raised in the household of the man who had ordered his death. Verse 11 says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So this was likely one of the uh, the labor, la- uh, sorry, the slavers, one of the, the people that uh, oversaw the forced labor. Um, and so he was beating a Hebrew. Verse 12 says, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you our ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now, first of all, it says that Moses looked, is anyone watching? So he had some sort of thought before he stopped the abuse of this uh, Hebrew slave, but then he he kills the Egyptian. But here's the thing. What about the Hebrew that he saved? He thought nobody knew. Obviously, somebody knew. It's amazing, though, how many people, you know, and I'm myself at times, uh, there's there's been times in my life where I've been in this boat. Nobody's going to know. And then the next thing you know, everyone knows. Things don't stay hidden. They just don't. And so Moses had killed this guy, and then the next day he finds out, yeah, everybody knows Moses. We also find out his motivation because in verse 14, he tries to stop somebody from beating up somebody else, and that guy says, are you trying to be our ruler? Moses was kind of... putting himself in the role of deliverer, of savior of his people. We don't know how long Moses had known that he was a Hebrew. He might have always had some sort of awareness. Maybe he figured it out along the way. Hey, that gal that was my nanny and she was a Hebrew, but I'm she looked a lot like me and her son and daughter 
looks a lot like me. And then, you know, one day he figures it out. Uh, we don't know when his uh, Egyptian foster mother died. Maybe she told him. We don't know the specifics. We only know that he knew. And so it's not inconceivable to think that his motivation was to become the ruler of his people. But he's an imperfect deliverer. Anytime we try to have deliverance outside of Jesus, it's, it's always going to fail. Even if you, let's say that you had a substance abuse problem, and you get clean, and you've been sober, and you're sober the rest of your life, that doesn't deal with everything else. I've known people that have been sober for, for decades, and praise the Lord for that but they've never dealt with the anger or the bitterness, and now they don't have their coping mechanism, so they're just even more angry. Uh, it's what some people call a dry drunk. You know, somebody who's just, they don't have their coping mechanism anymore, and they, they're able to stay clean, but all of that anger or, or hurt or whatever is still there. The things, the root causes are still there. Uh, you could get your candidate in. If, if you're seeking a, a political solution, your candidate gets in. But you know what? There's still people from the other party who have positions of authority and power. Uh, or your candidate gets in, but then four years, eight years, and they're gone, and now what do you do? They were just there temporarily. Whenever we try to find deliverance outside of God, it always fails. Substances have always failed us. Substance abuse has always failed us. Political leaders have always let us down. Self-willpower, you know, that's the opposite of substance abuse, the, the dry drunk, the person who gets clean, gets sober, but never gets over those root causes. The only deliverance that we can have is, is through God. When Moses did finally come back as a real deliverer, spoiler alert, that happens, it only works because he is just the vessel. He is not the deliverer. It's God working through him. Now, the Pharaoh hears about this, verse 15, and he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Now, uh, the Midianites, going back into Genesis, had some distant family connection to the people of Israel. It's not surprising to find people who feared God among them. And this priest to the real God, the true God, the God of the Bible, had seven daughters. So apparently he had no sons, which in that culture was a, um, a negative. It shouldn't be. Uh, it's like, how do, you how do you talk about the realities of some ancient culture? A and then there it's the stories in the Bible. Like, what they were doing was messed up. The whole point of the Bible is God delivering us from our mess, but that's what was going on back then. So, yes, because he had seven daughters and he had apparently no sons, he's at a disadvantage. His daughters are being harassed by these male shepherds. Big surprise. And Moses comes along and, you know, basically uh, he, he's 
he, if, he, if he grew up in Pharaoh's house, it's not unreasonable to think that he was skilled in combat, in warfare. And so he drove away these other shepherds and watered the flock of the priest of Midian. Now, it's fair to ask, why is this guy a priest? I thought only the Levites could be priests. We get glimpses in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. We get glimpses of people who knew God, who followed God, but were not part of Israel. There is only one way to God. Jesus said, and this is one of my most quoted scriptures, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but through Jesus. He says, but through me, but you know what I mean. So, the, there is only one way to God. And the people of Israel were God's chosen people. But God is working and moving. I remember a fantastic book, I've read it a couple of times now, is called The Lost History of Christianity by Philip Jenkins. Uh, I believe Dr. Jenkins is at Baylor University now. He was at Yale when he wrote the book. I've read it a couple of times. It's a fantastic book about the history of Eastern or Nestorian Christianity, uh, also sometimes called the Church of the East. And there's a story in there that Christian missionaries came to Japan to evangelize the, the heathens, and they found believers there because the Nestorian Christians had already been there. God is working even if we don't know about it. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus, but Jesus' church is far wider than just the Western church or the American church or the Protestant church or the Catholic church. If our view of the church is limited to Western history, then our view of what God is doing is sadly limited. It's one of my great frustrations that almost every good church history book is a Western church history book, as if we were the history of the church. Verse 18 says, The girls returned to rule their father. That's the name of the priest of Midian. And he asked them, Why have you returned so early? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Hey, let's let's bring the boy in. He must be hungry. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for foreigner there. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out for their help to, for help because of their slavery. And their cry went up to God. And verse 24, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked to the Israelites and was concerned about them. A couple things there. We leave Moses, but we see that the people have started to cry out to God. It's not that God had forgotten his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's possible that what's going on here is that we only have human words to describe God. 
There are parts of the Bible that talk about the eyes of the Lord looking over the whole world. But we don't think that God's some giant out in space with big, giant God eyes. We understand that God does not have a body, that God the Father is spirit, that that he dwells outside of our limitations, but we only have limited words to describe him. So when it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it could be that we are just trying to describe what happened in our limited ability. It could also be a covenant is a two-way street. It could also be that this is the first time that God's people cried out to him in their 200-some years of slavery. It could be that this is the first time where collectively they cried out for deliverance. Either one works. The point is that God was not distant, that God cared about what was going on, and he was active, and he was preparing a deliverer. And in God's sense of humor, It's going to be somebody who tried to be the deliverer and failed, as humans always do. And God said, yeah, I'll use that guy. Now, verse 1, chapter 3, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. In In chapter 2, he's referred to as rule. In chapter 3, he's referred to as Jethro. I'm going to assume, and I think this is the general uh, belief, that one is a family name and one or a title and the other is a given name. Whenever you come across things like this, you have to remember that people have been reading the Bible for thousands of years. And when, when they wrote this down, you would think somebody would go, hey, there's two different names. But apparently that wasn't a big deal to them. Apparently uh, having these two titles or a name or a first name and a last name or whatever it is, would have made sense to the original writer and the original audience. And I've found that 99% of things where people say, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible is, is just this kind of stuff. Now, it says that he's, he's tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? The burning bush is one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. Recently on a Sunday morning, we've we've talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And if you take those with David and Goliath and the burning bush, and the crossing of the Red Sea, you're, you're rounding out your Mount Rushmore of well-known Bible stories. Over the years, I have heard people try to explain away the burning bush. Well, there's this bush. It's very rare. It exists in the desert, and it catches on fire, and then it stops. Okay, maybe that's what's going on, but there was something that was different. And if you lived out in the desert like that for any length of time, you probably would hear stories about this sort of thing happening. Something was different. And even if that is the case, that there was some natural means that God was using, it got Moses' attention. So he goes over, verse 4, 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to take a look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Because the people of Israel are crying out in Egypt, and over in Midian, God is preparing the one he is going to use to bring their deliverance. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I want to say two things before our time is done. The first is this. God's work in this world is not dependent on our ability. Moses was a failed deliverer. But it does depend in part on our obedience. We need to say when God calls, here I am. When God gives us a work to do, we need to say, here I am. When God wants to do a change in our life, we need to say, here I am. When God wants us to be faithful and it's boring or it's hard or it's monotonous and can't there be something different, God just says, no, I want you to do this work faithfully for me for many years. We need to say, here I am. The second thing I want to point out is this. He says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. There's some cultural stuff to do with feet there. I'm not going to get into. The big idea is this, though, that what was going on, the presence of God being there required a response. God is holy. He is pure. He knows no sin. And he wants to remove sin from our hearts. He wants to remove sin from our lives. He wants to remove sin from our thinking. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus is one of victory and hope. I have talked to people who have said, well, you know, I'm so thankful for the grace of God because you know what? I'm just going to always be sinning. I'm thankful for the grace of God that roots out the sin in my life. I'm thankful for the grace of God that says, Adam, I love you where you are at, but I love you so much that I'm not leaving you there. I'm thankful that God is changing my heart and working on me. And, and are there still things God needs to work on? Absolutely. I, I reject, there, there is an old teaching that quite honestly comes from our church's theological heritage that says that s Christians can reach a point where they just stop sinning. We don't see that in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says if you say you're without sin, you're lying. But what we do see in the Bible is victory over sin. And that Jesus takes people like the Apostle Peter who denied Jesus because of his cowardice and then the resurrection happens and the Holy Spirit descends and a spirit-filled Peter, the fisherman, gets up in front of a crowd and says, you guys crucified Jesus, but he wants to forgive you your sins. I believe and I'm so thankful for the life-changing power of God. And you may be in Egypt right now crying out for a deliverance and not seeing it coming, but I just want to say and encourage you that over in the metaphorical Midian, where we don't see it yet, God is working on our deliverance. God knows where you are at. God knows the struggle. 
God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is enough for me. But his power and his work is not done with us yet. He's raising up deliverers and he's causing men and women to take off their sandals and exist in his holy ground. Father, I pray that you would deliver us, that you would empower us, that we would surrender to you and say, here I am in Jesus' name. God bless you. We'll see you again on another episode of 20-Minute Bible Study.